Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Father, I pray that the result of us going through this letter to the Philippians by Paul will fill us up with joy. Father, that as as we look at what Christ has done for us and how we can go through suffering with the right attitude and consider everything we might think to our prophet rubbish so that we would gain Christ, may Christ be our everything. Just impact us, Father, with this concept of being fully satisfied in Christ and allowing that to well up in us with such rejoicing so that, Father, our focus is always on Christ whenever we go through suffering struggles of any kind. And that, Father, in the end, we will always give you praise. So fill us up with joy this evening as we go through this letter. Speak very clearly and specifically to our hearts and to our needs. Spirit of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you may remember we have talked about this. Philippians was one of those letters Paul wrote while he was in house under house arrest in Rome. That would be between 60, 62 AD or maybe 59 to 61. We're not exactly sure, but I'm going to say 60 to 62. So for about two years here. And we don't know if it was written before or after uh, Colossians and Philemon and Ephesians. But it was more than likely not written at the same time. But nevertheless, within like a year of each other, approximately. So Paul is under house arrest. He is in Rome. We find out in chapter one that the people in the palace, the guards there, are aware that he is there for the cause of the gospel, which in all honesty should cause anyone to question the justice behind this. Regardless, it gives him many opportunities to witness. And so it also allows him to have a lot of time on his hands. And he pens this letter to the Philippians. Um, I, I want us to see something from the outset as far as who he addresses it to. What are the three groups of people? Uh, okay, loosely three groups. There's overlap, you'll see. What are the three groups that he addresses it to? Anybody? To the saints. And and by the way, saints is hagios or hagioi, plural, holy ones. We translate it saints, literally holy ones, but you understand. Those are the saints in Christ Jesus. All right. Other two groups. What are they? Overseers Overseers and deacons. Okay. Where are the elders? Where are the pastors? Okay, this is one of the verses that helps us understand uh, what we call ecclesiology, which basically is how church government runs or how the church runs in this area of leadership. Um, Overseers are not different from elders and pastors. If they were, Paul made a serious mistake here by leaving out the chief guys who are leading the local churches. And why would he do that? Now, within a hundred years, actually sooner than that, it became very traditional for someone to be an overseer of a city. And it, it's unfortunate. I, I, I suppose that there can be a hierarchy within the body of Christ. Um, but these then, these 
we do not want to make the mistake of calling them bishops or overseers, that they are in some way different than the man who's been given charge or the men who have been given charge to oversee a church. There is no distinction. So please, when you think of bishop, um, my wife's background is Episcopalian. Episcopos is, means, is, is that word bishop or overseer. And this is our word, episcopoi, overseers, that's used here. Uh, presbuteros would be elder, presbuteroi elders, and that, those are the men that oversee local churches. They're given the care for the people in those local churches. Now, uh, we could look at numerous verses. We're not going to do that, but I, I'm just going to suggest to you that overseer is the same as elder. And that's why when Paul, in writing to Timothy, does not speak of elders and deacons, but overseers and deacons, because there's no difference between an overseer, an elder, or a pastor-teacher. Okay? I want us to look at this uh, very first paragraph. He's talking, it, it uses this word, joy, and we're going to encounter, uh, I don't know if we in our discussions are going to encounter it a lot, but you will encounter it. Uh, this concept of joy or rejoicing in Philippians. And it's because of what we're going to read about in this letter of spe- specifically chapters two and three. Uh, but Christ is the very focus of everything that he is talking about. And we're going to see that in those two chapters. But here he says that he prays with joy and he is excited for them as he prays for them because of their partnership in the gospel. And that word partnership is the Greek word koinonia. It's generally translated fellowship. It means sharing a commonness or a common bond. Okay. Your common bond, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, most would consider that partnership to be financial giving, but I'm going to suggest to you that it is more than just financial giving. It is more than prayer. They are actually participating in the building up of the kingdom. And it's not just that they are partnering with him in giving and praying, though that is very significant and important, and he actually touches on those things in chapter 4. But I believe that it is much more than that. It is this outward working of faith, of what God is doing in them, we're going to come to in, in just a moment here. But God is has worked in them and working through them. And even as Paul is being poured out like a drink offering, so they too are doing that. And we know this because at the end of chapter 1, he says, uh, he talks about their sufferings. And he says, these are the very same struggles you're going through and that you saw that I went through. So they are suffering. Why would they be suffering? Why would they be going through hardships? Well, the hardships we're going to see is more than just this, but is it's he is focusing on persecutions that he's gone through and the difficulties he's gone through, and they're going through the same thing. Why? Because they, too, are being poured out like a drink offering. So I'm going to suggest to you this partnership is more than just the giving and praying. They are participating in the Spirit of God, as the Spirit of God is working through them to impact Philippi. And then he says that his confident that because of this, he is now confident that the one who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion 
until the day of Christ Jesus. So that they're not going to, he's not going to do this at the day of Christ Jesus or on the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to do it up until that point. Now, obviously, there is going to be more of this inworking and outworking that needs to be done when Christ returns, but it will com- be completed at that time. So from the time they gave their heart to Christ to the time Christ returns, God is working in them. I want you now to turn to chapter 2, verse 13, because we see this, con- or actually 12 and 13, we see this concept of what God is doing in not just them, but in us. And he says, um, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to do two things, to will and to act according to his good purpose or good pleasure, his good will. Now, what does this tell us about bringing them to completion? How is it happening? Are they doing everything they can to um, find strength in themselves? Are they doing everything they can to exercise self-control? Trying really hard? I'm not saying that those things are not elements of this, but that's certainly not his focus here. What is Paul's focus here? God's sovereignty doing what? I'm sorry, really loud. Marla. Okay. Specifically, we learn in Romans that it's the Spirit of God, that deposit in us, guaranteeing our inheritance in the saints, that Spirit of God in us that is doing this and, and doing something in us, even to the point where the Spirit of God impacts our will, our choices, our perspective, our attitudes, our mindsets. This, all of these things make up our will. I want to be careful that we don't make the mistake of, of saying that this verse in some way teaches that God steps into the heart of the individual and he, through primary agency, changes our will. That would be a Calvinist or hyper-Calvinist perspective. I don't see that in Scripture. God impacts us through secondary agencies, through the Spirit working in us, and we submit to that, and that impacts our will. It is not God making these choices in us. Okay, That abrogates um, free choice, free will. Now, um, this past Sunday, we talked about how the Spirit of God, or how God, when we love God, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not, if you love me, 
then keep my commandments as if that is a duty and a command. And I'm not saying that scripture doesn't say that anywhere, but Jesus's point there in John 14, 15 is a promise and not a command. If you love me, this is what you're going to do. You will now be empowered to obey my commands. Why is that? Because God is working in them. So the challenge is for us to work out our salvation, make it evident, the Spirit of God working in us. Paul says, I struggle with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I struggle with all his energy that powerfully works in me. And I'm going to suggest to you that we do the very same thing. The Spirit of God works in us so that our will and our actions are being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, to the desires and actions of the Holy Spirit in us. Okay, you, question? Yeah, is this, how does this play in with the scripture that says God softens who so he wants to soften the hearts who so he wants to soften? Okay. Um, the question is, did God, through primary agency or secondary agency, harden Pharaoh's heart? Now, here's what I mean by that. Did God reach inside Pharaoh's heart and did he harden it like a rock? Or did God use circumstances and Pharaoh's sin hardened his heart? Scripture regularly talks about how God brings about um, evil disasters or, or natural evil as opposed to moral evil. And... Many times when we look through scripture, we see the sovereignty of God. For example, in Job, that God did these things to Job. Where you read in chapter 1 and 2, it wasn't God who actually did it. He permitted it. Satan actually did it. So, even though it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, instead of God doing something that would cause Pharaoh to sin because his hardened heart caused him to sin, right? We would we can see it as through a secondary agency, and that is God withdrawing his grace, what we what people call restra his restraining grace, and the depravity in the heart of Pharaoh just surged, and that sin in him on a rampage, if you will, hardened his heart. So God pulled back his restraining grace, sin in Pharaoh, and I'm, I'm going to appeal to Romans 7, it's sin in me that does this, Paul says. Sin in Pharaoh's heart surged, hardened his heart, said, no, I will not let your people go. And in that way, it can very legitimately be that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he used a secondary agency. So do you understand the difference between primary agency and secondary agency? So the Holy Spirit working in me is not changing my will against my will. But he is changing my will, setting up circumstances in my life to appeal to my heart. And as I trust him, as I obey him, my will is being more and more confirmed to, conformed to him. Okay? I want to make a distinction between primary and secondary agencies. And, and, and within Calvinism, there's an understanding of this as well. Okay? So 
the question, though, is, and we're going to see this in, in just a little bit when we get to this idea of faith, that it has been granted unto you both to believe and to suffer. And how are we to understand this in the sovereignty of God? All right. But my point is that God is working in us, even um, bringing about changes of will and action in us. I want us to continue on in chapter one, where Paul, and, and this is probably one of those concepts that Philippians are most well known for, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then the question that we've got to ask is, what does it mean for when Paul says, for me to live is Christ? For me to live is Christ. Because I, I think that what Paul is trying to say here is that his focus is so fully and completely on Christ, that his his will, his actions are conformed to that, that he finds his complete satisfaction in Christ, and as a result, he labors for Christ. So, for Paul, Christ sums up his entire life. Uh, to live as Christ, therefore, means to live for Christ, that our life is all about Christ, our life is focused on Christ, fully satisfied in Christ, that Christ is our everything. And I, I think then we need to ask this question, Do is, is your life Christ? Is your life fully focused on, satisfied in Christ? And when your cup is shaken, that's when you're going to find out if for you to live is truly Christ or is for you to live to get married, to do well in business, for people to praise you, to make your mark in this world, for people to adore you, admire you, for people to like you, for people to love you. Now, I'm not saying that Scripture says you shouldn't want people to love you, but if this is your focus, there are priorities out of sync in your life. And, and the more we find ourselves fully satisfied in Christ and our focus on Christ, then we're going to find this to be true. For me to live truly is Christ. And so he says, be, because there is a need amongst the, the Philippians that Paul can meet, he is convinced in the Lord that he is going to continue to live, that God is going to grant him more years. And, and as we found out, find out that he granted him about five, six, seven more years of life on this earth. We don't know if he went and visited the Philippians again, very possibly. He did stay in that Mediterranean era, area, but um, for him, Christ was everything, everything. So I want to, before I move on, I just want to leave this question with you. Where is your treasure? What do you treasure? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. For Paul, everything was in Christ. Everything. And we're going to find this concept of satisfaction um, that I'm talking about here later on in his concept of contentment. But that's chapter four. 
I want us now to to move on because when Paul finds himself so fully satisfied in Christ that Christ truly is everything for me to live as Christ, that is going to change how you go through trials. That is going to change how when your cup is shaken, what comes out. You're going to see, going through trials, I truly am finding my satisfaction in Christ. How else do we explain James 1.3, where he says, consider it pure, undiluted, genuine, unabridged joy when you face trials of many kinds? How do we explain that? How do you truly find joy in that? Now, I truly believe that when our satisfaction and our focus and our heart is so fully focused on Christ that when we go through these trials, we go through them with a very different perspective than not only what the world has, but honestly, many Christians have. They they don't want to find their satisfaction in Christ. They want Christ to give them things to satisfy them. Very prevalent in the prosperity gospel, but very prevalent, honestly, with many Christians. Young Christians, yes, but even many older Christians. Life is about attaining happiness, joy, contentment. Yes, but how? I, I feel like I'm a very blessed man. I feel like I have the most amazing wife, the most amazing children. I truly believe that. I truly, with all my heart, believe that. And I have many times thought, what would my life be like without my family? Wow, that would be hard. But, but, my children who are here, listen, but... If God never had me meet my wife, I'll start tearing up here in a second, and I never had my children, I truly believe I would still be able to find my full satisfaction in Christ. I believe that. Now, I will also have to say that my wife helped me in allowing the Spirit to will and to act in me. God used her in my life to help the Spirit of God conform me to the image of Christ so that my full satisfaction is in Christ. And and let me just say this. There are times in which I realize that my full satisfaction is not in Christ and that something is wrong in my heart and God needs to change that. But I, I believe even if God did not allow me to meet my wife, or to have us get married or have us have our, all of our children, that I would be able to find my satisfaction in Christ. That even if God didn't bless us with the house that we have or what at least, in my opinion, are luxuries, maybe someone very wealthy would laugh at that, (laughs) but someone from a third world country absolutely would agree with that. These are luxuries. Wow. Clothes I'm wearing right now are luxuries. Jeans and a button down. 
Air conditioning. Wow. Many people in Europe do not have air conditioning. It's like, it's like a given here in America, especially in Florida. But as we go through trials, that's what really shows us where is your heart. And I, I want us to look at this. In verse 17, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he talks about the struggles and trials and persecutions that they're going through. Now, what I'm going to talk about right now with regard to struggles and trials, I am going to group persecutions for proclaiming the gospel and shining Jesus, etc. You mentioned Jesus, we persecute you. That type of persecution, I'm going to lump together with hardships and struggles that you go through that you might think have nothing to do with me proclaiming Christ. But I'm going to tell you this, that they do. Because man is the one who instigates that first type of struggle and trial I'm talking about, what we call persecution. But it is still the devil that sets you up, just like he did for Job. And we go through these hardships and struggles. And Satan is the primary agent in these things, in these attacks, in these hardships. And I I need us to realize that regardless, both of these things are because we are in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that the world doesn't go through trials. But here's what I did notice. When I became a Christian, life got harder. It got harder. I actually got kind of discouraged and said, wow, God, I thought, maybe it was because of the certain TV shows that are Christian TV shows that I watched with my mom, but I thought that giving my heart to Christ, I would have all this love and joy and peace and happiness and things would start going right. I'd actually start getting A's on my test rather than just B's or whatever that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I might even get a girlfriend. Wow. You know, I thought that following you, life would be so much better. And, and it was, but I had to redefine that word better. And so, What I'm going to do then is I'm going, we're we're going to look here in verses, excuse me, 29 and 30. And I want us to see something about these trials and about faith. And then to do that, I'm going to lump persecutions and hardships. Persecutions come from men granted, stirred up by the devil, etc. But struggles, trials, hardships, just like what Jesus went through with the temptations. That word tempt and the word test are the same Greek word, by the way, translated two different ways in English. But these persecutions, these testings you go through from the hand of Satan, they are because you're a follower of Christ and the devil wants to shake your cup and have get you discouraged. He wants to pull you away from Christ. He wants to drive you away from Christ. He wants you to hate Christ. That's what he really wants you to do. And if you're not going to do that, then he's going to get you so focused on your struggles and your trials and how hard life is that he will render you neutralized. Your passion for Christ, well, what passion? Life is so hard. And I'm going to just tell you right now, with persecutions, if we're not careful, instead of reaching out for God, we begin to reach inward we're going to find ourselves less happy, 
Our focus is going to be on me and on my problems. I will not source Christ as I should. I am certainly not going to consider it pure joy when I'm facing trials of many, because I hate these trials. But look at this. Let me read verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you. Two things that have been granted. This word granted is the Greek word charizomai. We get the, the, it, that, that is, this is the verb form of charis, which is what? Grace. So this is the Greek verb to grace or to give freely or to give a gift out of grace. Okay, that's what this word means. So it has been granted to you. It has been given as a gift to you out of God's grace. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Just a word on this. I don't want to spend a lot of time and in, in actuality we could have a very big theological discussion right now on this concept of faith. Is faith a gift? Now, according to this, faith is a gift, but how do we understand that gift? Because he also says that sufferings are a gift. Now, eternal life is a gift. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is, de is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God gives us this gift, primary agency. God gives us this gift as a result of our faith. We, are, we were dead, now we are alive. He gives us, it is a gift that he gives us. Okay? Faith, I want to be careful because faith, is something that happens in my will. Now, God can stir that up, but God can't give me faith. He can stir it up. Different than the faith, the gift of faith in First Corinthians? Okay. Again, that gift of faith in Corinthians, I mean, yes it is, but... This that gift in in Corinthians again. How is it that that gift is there? I'm going to say it's certainly from the Holy Spirit, but is faith an exercise of my will? Again, it is God who works in me to will. But when I will, it is my will. Okay, it's not the Holy Spirit's will, trying you know overpowering my will. The Spirit is working in me and cultivating my heart so that my will conforms to His. And now I'm going to suggest the very same thing here. It is not like a gift. Here is faith, and God plants that faith in our hearts, but rather He stirs it up through a secondary agency. Now, why would I say this? Because that's the very thing that He does with suffering. Does God cause you to suffer? Well, according to Job, it was Satan who caused him to suffer, but God permitted it. So suffering is through a secondary agency. Now, do you, do you understand what I mean by primary agency and secondary agency? 
Primary agency, God gives us eternal life. Secondary agency is he gives us sufferings. He gives us faith. He does things to stir and fan into flame this faith and, and embolden us. But it is God who is doing this, but it is still our will. It is still my faith. It's not God's faith. Okay? Faith is something that is a part of my will. Now, I realize this makes a very strong distinction between Calvinism and Arminianism. I, 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 I am probably leaning more in the Arminian direction right now. And I realize that many people talk very boldly, uh, even who aren't Calvinists, about faith being a gift of God. And I'm not going to argue with that. I'm just, I am just saying, as we see it as a gift, we have to be careful then how we describe it. Because if we're not careful, it is God who takes his faith, this thing called faith, and he puts it in our heart. And I don't believe that's the way God does that. Now, there are some things that we would, again, we'd have to look at certain scriptures God, that God grants people repentance and stuff, but is it God that's, is repentance this thing that God puts in us? Or is God cultivating the soil of our heart through circumstances, through people, through the preaching of his word? And that then leads me to repentance. Because otherwise, I am a robot and God is causing me to repent. If we're not careful, that's how we can understand that. And that is not what Scripture teaches. But my focus in it... Yeah, okay. I just have a question. Um, can't you view it as God gives us the ability to repent? He grants us it, but then we have the choice to either... And then we have the choice to either like, receive that repentance, like actually repent, okay. or just... I think we're saying the same thing because I'm because as I was thinking through this, that word ability was a word that I would feel comfortable just in weighing numerous scripture passages. That's what we'd have to do. That's why I say this discussion can really be a long discussion. And uh, it, it's one in which Calvinists and Arminians love to talk about. Well, the faith that you have is really from God. OK, well, that sounds just like how God gives eternal life because eternal life is this quality, it's birthed from the heart of God, and faith is not birthed from... Faith Faith is something that I do in response to God, okay? And so, because it, it, it is in, it's in my will, okay? Otherwise, I don't have a will. I don't have a choice in this. God puts that faith there, and, and suddenly, I believe, okay? So... I, I am going to say, just as far as the ability, but what is ability? Ability is when you can do something. When sin surges in my heart, when I am angry, I don't want to love. I don't. When that anger is removed, love surges. Okay? And in the same, so now I'm able to love. And when you're angry, really angry, there is something inside, it's like a wall, and, and you honestly just don't want to love. Okay? And, and I'm going to say you, you're not able to love, and I can word it that way. But if God were to convict us of that anger, and that anger were to subside, and, and through the Spirit working in me, I repent of it, and now I'm able to love. I'm able to believe. So, 
I just want to be careful as we talk about this, because now he says, it's been granted unto you as a gift out of God's grace to believe. But then he says the very same thing about suffering. Does God suffer you? Is God the one doing it? He is not. He is not. He is allowing it. Because we're in a fallen world and he is allowing it. But even in the midst of allowing that suffering, what Satan means for evil, God is able to turn around for good. Okay, And so Paul then says the very suffering trials that you go through is like a gift from God. And because of this, with the right mindset, I am fully satisfied in Christ that nothing, no temptation or testing that comes my way will be beyond my ability to endure God working in me to will and to act according to his good purpose. And Nothing will, that, that no testing will be beyond my ability to endure. And I will be able to, by the power of the Spirit in me, rise up in this occasion and allow Christ to be seen in me. In this difficult situation in which I want to get angry, my heart is immediately put into check by the Spirit of God. My, my faith reaches out and said, yes, God, I, am hum- I humble myself before you. I don't understand this. And, I che- and instead of getting angry, now I am able to respond in love. Okay? And so these sufferings are now seen here as gifts of God. And I'm just going to say, the more you meditate on this concept of suffering, it is not something that we are called to hate, despise, reject, uh, get angry because of, um, do everything we can to avoid. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray about our trials. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about your attitude, your perspective on it. Sometimes God takes us through the fire. Sometimes he delivers us from the fire. But regardless, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will serve God. He is the full satisfaction of our life. Okay? Any word, any questions or comments on that? Okay. Um, tell you what, before I get into chapter 2... Uh, Wow, I'm only on chapter two. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to have us just take a few minute break. And I want you to just get up and stretch your legs just real quickly here. Um, And then, oops. Oh, is that a person or just a chair? No, that's just a chair. (laughs) We're good. Yes. So it's really cool because um, I think it's very encouraging because where it says in chapter one, verse 12, it says, what has that um, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And um, this morning, like, I was really thinking about that, and I was praying, you know, if God, you know, if and he is, God is sovereign, and God is loving, and his will 
will prevail over everything, then trials in our life and sufferings in our life will serve if we're in the center of his will to advance the gospel. Like, think about this. It's like really no-brainer here because if his desire, if God's desire in his will is for the gospel to spread across the earth, then we have to assume that whatever he allows in our life as those who are in Christ, we will bear much fruit because that's that will happen. It's like an effect of being in Christ. And that the gospel will be advanced in our situation. Like even though we can't see that. Like mm-hmm. I think of many circumstances like this guy named Robert Germain Thomas. He um you know his story. Missionary. Yeah. China. Yeah. Okay. So he actually like it's a long story, but but the very end, like even so, like he he was beheaded, and the Bible was like the last only Bible was taken from him and pretty much like shredded, um, shredded. But God was sovereign through that because the the guy, um, the king or whatever, who was like cried prideful, and he was like, "Well, I'll show what." I'm going to do with this and he was like putting it as a like a trophy on his wall and just pages plastered all over his wall God oh, really use that for the future of China like the gospel in the hearts of those who see and stuff like I'm just saying like you just never know you never know we we see dimly like we see like right and, and God is using it for a greater purpose, and we have to know and believe that this is true, that God is, in our circumstances, even in our sufferings, like, through it all, that he is He is a, a, advancing the gospel. And, and in my situation that I'm in, I, you know, one of the first things I said to the Lord is, how could you be glorified in this? Like, how will you ever, your name is going to be famed or whatever. And, but... It's amazing because in some ways, like in my dim perspective, yes, that's true. But in so many other ways that are so greater and so of God, his name is being proclaimed even bigger because he is just now, I mean, because of the things that we've personally gone through and same with everyone else in their circumstance, but God is opening the doors wider in, in places and People that would have never heard and and heard the good things that God right. is doing. Like it's just so much greater than we can fathom. And as a result of this, suffering is a win-win situation for every Christian. Can be right. a win-win situation for every Christian. The hardest thing most painful thing that we've ever been through can be a win-win situation. It can be. Because God has an ultimate good that is going to come from it. And at the time, we may have absolutely no clue what that might be. And so that's why we go through it with faith. The strengthening of your faith will bring about perseverance. And it brings about the character of Christ. And it is those things, it's those things that we will be rewarded 
in the future for. Okay. All right. Okay, chapter two. Chapter two is an absolutely awesome chapter. Okay, just like every uh, chapter in Philippians, but it's an awesome chapter. It has what uh, theologians would call either a creed or a hymn or a confession. And we see that from verses six through 11. Um, It's possible that Paul modified it. He's paraphrasing it or that it's a direct quote. But this is something... So Paul's writing about 60 AD. This is a quote or a paraphrase from some, excuse me, from something that the church believed. And so whatever we find here is not something that Paul is penning for the first time. It's not as if he has suddenly come up with this idea or in the next or within the last couple of years. He quotes this to the Philippians. More than likely, because the Philippians know this. He quotes this to the Philippians because not only do the Philippians more than likely know this, but because it's been around for a while, either a hymn or a creed or a confession. And so the roots of this, the truths of this, go back way before 60 AD. Now, I'm mentioning this because in the realm of the, or in the arena of skepticism, Atheism, agnosticism, uh, other religions, etc. They believe that the cross and the resurrection, the um, the glories of Christ, his exaltation, all of those things were things that the church over time fabricated, and they call them legend. Now, this was thirty years, sixty A.D., thirty years after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. And I can guarantee you that this hymn had been around much for, for quite a while. So, anyway, uh, a magnificent hymn, confession, creed, whatever. But why does Paul include this? Why, does, why is it so apropos? Why does it fit so well? And it's because if you were to look in chapter 1... Um, Um, here we go. The, verse 27, what happens? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Unity, therefore, is very important. As they're going through these trials, don't undermine that unity with complaining and arguing, which he gets into later in this chapter. Do everything you can to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, what Paul says in Ephesians 4. And so unity is to be cultivated. If there's complaining, if there's arguing, if there's um, offenses, between one another, these are going to create distractions from the gospel and finding our full satisfaction in Christ for me to live as Christ. And if that happens, then the church being able to stand as one man, encouraging each other, standing firm against these trials, 
will not happen or it'll happen to a lesser degree. So unity, as they're going through these persecutions and trials as gifts from God, unity is absolutely crucial. So how is, what does he say there? So he talks about encouragement. He talks about comfort. He talks about this fellowship, koinonia. He talks about tenderness and compassion. Um, there's a lot that we can see here. Um, verse 2 is actually each of these things uh, that make my joy complete by being like-minded goes back to un- united with Christ. Um, having the same love goes back to uh, if any comfort from his love. Um, being one in spirit goes back to the fellowship with the spirit, tenderness and compassion. That is now in this concept of being one in purpose, okay? And that purpose is to be poured out like a drink offering, okay? Serving others. So we can see how verses 1 and 2 connect. And now he says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. What does the NASB or or more literal translation read there? Um, I'm sorry, what the, the last phrase, say it louder, but in humility, as more important. Okay. So when it uses this concept of better, he's not talking about value. You're more valuable than me, but rather I am going to consider your needs as more important than mine. Okay. So we're not talking about value. We're all made in the image of God. We're all level footing at the foot of the cross, etc. He is talking about us laying selfish ambition, my desire to get ahead, promote self, get my needs met, laying that aside as in, in being able to meet others' needs as a primary focus. Then he goes on and he says, look not only to your own interests, so he's not saying forget about your needs, don't take care of yourself, but have this mindset where you're constantly looking around and meeting the needs of others. Stop focusing on self. Deny self. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. So, of course, guess who he gives is the primary example of someone who does, who has done this, and that's Jesus. Now, he does look at Timothy, and he does look at Epaphroditus, and just to do that for a moment, because I do want to spend... Uh, quite a bit of time on uh, verses 5 to 11. But if we were to turn to verses 19 and 20, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so Timothy is a, is now a flesh and blood example of what he's talking about here. Epaphroditus in the next paragraph is also a good example of this because they sent Epaphroditus to him, uh, or Epaphroditus if you choose to pronounce it that way. And it says in verse 27 that he apparently got very ill even to the point of death. And now he's done his job and he's sending him back and he says, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. And so here's another example who someone 
who considered not only his own interests, but the interests of Paul to the point where he almost died, risking his life, serving Paul. Okay, he got ill. And I can only imagine in a, a you know, in just all that he was doing, um, that he would be open to, to that kind of thing. Just really sacrificing and wearying himself, etc. Now, looking at this example of Christ, it is very theological. There are still questions that we have about this, but this is an amazing passage when it's properly understood to use for someone like a Jehovah's Witness who does not believe that Jesus was God, but that rather he was a created being exalted to the highest place. Well, let me retract that. He was actually exalted to the second highest place in their perspective. And so when we get to this, that Jesus was exalted to the highest place, that highest place is reserved for God and God only. That's where he was exalted to. The glories that he emptied himself of were established once again when he ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And he was exalted. Now, it starts off by saying that who, our attitude, should be the same to that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. That word, very nature, is the Greek word morphos. It's literally translated form. Um, it doesn't mean that Jesus had the outward form of God. My goodness, what would that look like? Jesus was light. Jesus was super glorious. Form. The form of God. The problem is that we never know the form of God. You could not even create an image of God. Don't even try to think of an image of God. Okay? And so if he, if we're literally going to talk about the shape, the silhouette, the form, the mold, the cast, you know what I'm talking about? Mold of Christ, uh, of God, what does that mean? It has no meaning because that is not a concept that we're even supposed to touch on as far as the form of God, if that's what we mean, just an appearance, an outward form. And so that's why your Bible has in there the very nature, the essence, okay? The radiance of God's glory. The only way for Jesus to be the perfect representation of God and the full expression of God's glory, the full radiance of God's glory, is if he was of the very essence of God. For example, I'll use a light. You have a light and it's a, it's a thousand watt light bulb. You look at the light and it is really, really bright. And there's only one way that that thing can be really bright and that's because it's a thousand watt watt light bulb. Not because it's a 500 watt or a lesser watt, but because it's a thousand watt light bulb. For Jesus to exude the glories and the radiance of God, that means his essence had to be God. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? The essence of that light bulb is not 500 watt, it's a thousand watt. 
If it's that bright, it's a thousand watt light bulb, okay? Because what's inside is what gives it that brightness, if you will, that glory, that right? it's the essence of it. So the essence of God, Jesus, is what is why Jesus is able to be the exact representation of God, Hebrews 1, and the, the full radiance of God's glory, not a lesser radiance. An infinite magnitude of radiance because he's God. That's what Jesus said. How can that be? Because Jesus is God. All right? So this concept of morphos, this concept of form, doesn't mean the outward shape, but rather the inner essence because it's contrasted not with man later in verse 5, but with this concept of servant. Servant is the essence. It's the nature of a person. All right? We serve. I, I don't have to have the title of servant. That's not what it's getting at. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. So his nature was now a servant, his essence, if you will. And so he he was in the form or very nature or essence God. He did not consider holding on to that glory and essence and that full radiance of God's glory, something to continue to be held on to. But he, and, and being equal with God in that radiance and both Father, Son, being God, were equal in their glory, though in their relationship of authority, they were not. And that's what trips up many people. Jesus says, God is greater than I. God, the Father, had authority over Jesus. And in that sense, the Father was greater than Jesus. Yes, that's necessary. And the Spirit... Jesus was greater than the Spirit because Jesus sent the Spirit and had authority over the Spirit. All right. So it says that he made himself nothing. Some translations, NASB says, he emptied himself. Now, as long as we realize that when it says he emptied himself, he did not give up any of his godness. He didn't give up any of his attributes he didn't become lesser of God. He didn't stop being God as long as we understand that because he, even in his earthly form, he is still worshipped. They didn't just bend the knee to him and pay homage. They truly worshipped him. And Peter, excuse me, Thomas is not rebuked by Jesus when he says when he saw the resurrected Christ, my Lord and my God. He wasn't stepping back and saying, my Lord, or, or to Jesus rather, my Lord, and then looking up to heaven and saying, my God and my God. He was, not, he was looking at Jesus and calling Jesus his Lord and his God. Now, when G, if you were to imagine that thousand watt light bulb with a green film placed over it. Does the wattage of the light bulb change in any way? No, it does not. 
But what you see does. When Jesus came in the appearance as a man, that appearance of him did change. We now, we now looking at Christ, see a veiled glory of God, but God in Christ did not change. It is now subject to limitations and frailties and injury. I am sure Jesus stubbed his toe when he was a little boy. Jesus bled. Before the cross, Jesus bled. That wasn't the first time that he saw blood coming from his own body. Now, Jesus then took on these limitations. How these limitations and to what degree these limitations impacted him, we only know a little bit. Obviously, one way is that even though the godness in him was still fully God, it's limited, and so he could not be present everywhere as the God-man. When he was resurrected and that limitation was changed, now he could be. So in his earthly ministry for 33 years, he could not be everywhere at the same time. When he was resurrected, and to this day, he is. He, he was, his mind was limited. He still had to learn his Aleph Bet Gimels, okay? Uh, his ABCs. He had to learn his times tables and addition and subtractions. His mind was limited. He had to learn. And there were some things that in his learning, the Father was able to keep from him because of that veiled glory. And so he was not omniscient, though maybe the godness in him was, but how do you express that with the flesh and the frailties of man encumbering it? We just say that he was not omnipresent, he was not omniscient, and he was not omnipotent. He now, as we discover, like in Luke 4, he had to source the Spirit. He had given up that privilege as one being fully God, now taking, now becoming also fully man, and he had to rely completely on the Father and the Spirit. All right. This humility of stepping down into an earthly existence was epitomized at the cross. This concept of not just humility, but expressed in obedience to the Father. Total, complete submission to the will of the Father. And that is significant because the trial that Jesus went through in Gethsemane, we will never fully understand. The agony. I have not come even close to, to having blood come from my pores. And yet that's the intensity of the struggle that Jesus went through in Gethsemane. Now at the cross, bearing the full weight of the sins of men, he now accomplished salvation. Again, 
I do not understand why God couldn't just forgive all of sin. It's just in his nature and who he was, sin had to be paid for. So, in a sense, Jesus, in his pre-incarnate essence, as God, as the Son of God, before he took on human flesh, he, he, he could be considered Savior, but he had not accomplished our eternal redemption, and that is the focus here, okay, in the name Jesus. So the name Jesus, meaning Savior, was prophetic because even though before in his pre-incarnate self he was Savior, he had not yet truly saved us from our sins. He had not become that sacrifice. So now that he had accomplished that, he is exalted. And in, in John 17, Jesus says, give me the glory that I had with you at the beginning. So this emptying of himself, this making of himself nothing, has something to do with that glory. Now he is completely glorified. We see this actually in Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man is ushered before the ancient of days because he's coming on a cloud. This is not Jesus before he steps into his humanity and dies on the cross, Daniel 7, but it's after. It is a picture, a scene, a vision that Daniel has of the exalted Christ getting ready to sit down at the right hand with the Father. And now, because he accomplished our salvation, all nations are given to him and worship and honor and serving and dominion. Everything is now given to him. And he is in this process of accomplishing the very intention of him creating men. And that is to win the full scope of the elect. And I would venture to say so much so that Christianity, faith in Christ, will extend from sea to sea. Um, and I'm not just talking about some future reign of Christ after he returns that some call the millennium. No, I'm talking about here before Christ returns, his rule extending from sea to sea. So he is... He, when he ascended, he was seated, he was exalted, um, he was given the place that is the highest place. That place is occupied by God the Father himself. He shares his glory, Isaiah says, with no one. It doesn't say no man. So somehow maybe he could do that with an angel. No, it says no one. No one. No one. And consequently... For Jesus to share the Father's glory, to share his... When you're in... Throughout Revelation, we see only one throne in which God occupies. Jesus is seated on that throne. There are the thrones of the 24 elders around the throne, but there's only one throne in the middle. And it is God the Father, and it is the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, seated on that throne. And then... It says that if we overcome, we are seated with him in Christ on that throne. Now, I can only imagine we are, I, I, you can take that really far, like 
Mormons would and say, well, that means we must become God. That is not what he is saying. But we have now been given that privilege that is reserved at this point for the Son, and he extends that inheritance now to us. So we will rule and reign with Christ when we get to heaven. Now, it also says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every one. Everyone. All angels and demons. Yes. Exactly. Those who were buried. The grave will give up the dead, even the wicked, and they will be resurrected. And maybe it's at the great white throne judgment, wherever it is, but they will bend the knee and recognize Jesus is Lord. When we are witnessing, our prayer is, God, may this person who doesn't know you bend the knee now, this side of heaven, rather than just simply on the other side. But one way or the other, they will bend the knee. They will recognize this Jesus that I rejected in my life, my earthly lifetime. He truly was Lord and Savior, the name of Jesus, Savior. The one who accomplished salvation, who is now exalted and given the highest place that only God occupies. All right. Any questions or comments on that? All right. Um, chapter 3. Again, we are going to come across this concept and what I'm going to call this pure, full-blown satisfaction in Christ. And he words it this way, simply, to know Christ. And he says there in verse 9, excuse me, 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. All things. Anything that he has, he had given up, and any privileges up, he had given them up, so anything he has is truly a gift of God. But Christ is his consuming passion. His consuming passion. This is who he lives for every moment of every day. When he makes a business deal, because remember, Paul was a businessman. All right? Tent maker. He was a businessman. In every business decision, he sought to walk in the Spirit and have the mind of the Spirit and to seek Christ. And wondering, now with this money, what do I do? How can I help the poor? That's one of the reasons why he walked. Acts chapter 20 tells us this. Remember in his dialogue with the elders, Ephesian elders. And so Paul is consumed with this concept of knowing Christ. Now, when we talk about knowing Christ... We must understand he is not simply talking about knowing about Jesus. He is talking about a relational knowledge and an experiential knowledge. Okay? 
because he goes on in verse 10 to say, I want to, three things. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Fellowship, just think intimacy. Intimacy, when you go through, I'll get there in a second. Um, To know Christ then is experiential. You, we experience Christ. He is not just someone we read about on the pages of Scripture. We experience Jesus. We also experience, he says, I want to know Christ, and I want to know, that is, experience the power of his resurrection. And so, Jesus' resurrection power dwells within him. Um, and then lastly, when he talks about the fellowship or the intimacy of Christ's sufferings, the next time you go through a trial, I want you to think about this concept, the intimacy we have with Christ in our sufferings. We have become the object of Satan's persecution. And everything that happened to Christ, every natural evil or him becoming the object of men's moral evil, everything that happened to Christ was for his advantage and ours. Every evil that the devil targeted him with was a win-win for Jesus. Every one of them. Even the greatest evil perpetrated in all of history, the crucifixion of Jesus, was for his good and yours. And so when we go through trials, maybe persecutions at the hand of men, persecutions at the hand of the devil, regardless, I want you to think about the intimacy that you can have at that moment with Christ. Because we, how does it say, um, we move, uh, we pers- we move forward. How does it go in in Second Corinthians? Move forward in triumphal procession. He leads us. Thank you. There we go. He leads us in triumphal, even in the midst of suffering. He leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Okay, and he even talks about the aroma of death there. So we share in the fellowship and the intimacy of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. All right. Now, he realizes that all of these things that could be to his personal glory, Paul was a very smart dude. He grew up with a good education. He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says that he excelled beyond many in his religion. He kept the law so carefully, but may I add, he still sinned. He he was given many privileges because of his place in in 
the Judean religion. Okay? There were many good things about Paul that people would say, wow, Paul is just an awesome man. He considered all of those rubbish. Because the most important thing was knowing Christ, experiencing Christ, having sin slough off, the flesh daily crucified, reflecting Jesus, knowing Jesus, imitating Jesus, focusing on Jesus, and finding his total satisfaction in Jesus. That is his goal, truly reflecting Jesus. He hadn't obtained this by 60 AD or 62 AD, whatever. He hadn't obtained this. That was his goal. He was still not there. The work that God had begun in him was being carried on to completion and still had not been fully completed. So what is Paul's response? When Paul sinned again in whatever sin might beset him, did he throw a pity party? Was he riddled with guilt? Did he fall on his face and say, I am just so unworthy, I am no good, and God, you just can't use me? No, because all of that is a focus on himself. In Christ, that is where our worthiness, worthiness is found. In Christ, that's where my forgiveness is found. In Christ, that's the only place I find no condemnation. In Christ... That's where I find my complete satisfaction and my complete acceptance by God. So those, those times when he sins and he gets right with God, he says he forgets them. And my question to you is, do you forget? Or do you have too good of a memory? Trust me, in the natural, Paul had a great memory. But spiritually, yeah, he, 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 was, he was that... Uh, um, well, what do you, nutty, the, the absent-minded professor, that's the expression. He was the absent-minded professor. He would, he would be able to forget those past offenses because they were forgiven and they were under the blood. And he was able to strain forward. Now, I'm not saying that we, should, we, we don't grieve when we sin. We grieve the Spirit of God. Certainly, that should grieve us. But we don't camp out there. That's guilt. And Christ came to re- relieve us of that. As long as we understand, we, we, are, we are guilty only in the sense that, you know, guilty is pleaded. I'm, I'm the one who did that. I am guilty. But I am not guilty in the sense that that charge is laid against me and I am punished for that charge. Okay? That punishment was placed on Jesus. Okay? So, therefore, that type of guilt is what I'm talking about. That is not something the Christian experiences. All right. So, Paul is able to move forward, straining towards what is ahead, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus, eternal life. And then he, he concludes this, I mean, we call it a chapter because of how of our chapter divisions here. And it says, we eagerly await a savior from heaven, that is, 
The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, would transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. His glorious body. His glorious body has no limitations to his deity now. He is now omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Not that we will be, but our physical bodies, because we're not in essence God, our physical bodies in heaven will present no limitations whatsoever to us. If you can imagine what Jesus, you could touch Jesus' body. He wasn't a ghost where your hand just went through him, right? They could touch, he could eat. He, he could eat real physical food. Yes, he did. He still had his scars. And I can, I'm going to tell you he's going to have those scars for the rest of his life. Paul bragged about his marks in Christ Jesus. Okay? They were his sufferings and physical marks on his body. I'm sorry, his trophies. Yes, they were. Um, those marks on Jesus' body are his trophies. His, they, they are the things that we look at him and say, behold the Lamb of God, sacrificed even before the creation of the world. Now, the nature of Jesus' body after his resurrection is going to be the very same nature of our resurrection body. We will be able to eat real physical food. We'll be able to touch one another Maybe because he is God, Jesus is able to transform his appearance so that the two on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him. Or that what they saw, maybe in their own eyes, so whether it was a miracle in how Jesus looked or a miracle in their eyesight, I, I, I don't know, they couldn't recognize him. Jesus was able to, to, to do that. But when the veil was lifted or he would, he looked like himself. They recognized him. Okay. When he stood in their midst, they didn't say, Whoa, who are you? It's because he looked like Jesus. Now I'm not saying we're in, when we're, well, when we're in heaven, we're going to look 33 years old, but how exactly we're going to look at, I don't know. I'm saying 25, but who knows? So we, our glorious body will be just like his. Now, I want to conclude with this. In chapter 4, there's just so much, so many good things. Um, again, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And he, he talks about, again, it's how we can cultivate this joy with a complete satisfaction in Christ. Chapter 2, he says, uh, verse 14, do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. And what is it that causes us to rejoice? It is because we find ourselves fully satisfied in Christ. So get rid of the complaining and arguing. That's going to take you down the wrong trail. That is going to cause you to become dissatisfied. Why aren't I married? Why do I still have to have this job? No matter how hard I try, I still can't get A's on this test or even B's. Hard as I try. Well, 
let, let, let's make sure we're finding our full, not partial, but full satisfaction in Christ. And let's be content with this. Be content. And lo and behold, hey, that's what he actually talks about here in this chapter. I have learned to be content in any and every situation. Now, in part, it's because he's setting his mind on things above. He is focusing on what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, praiseworthy, excellent. Think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. Wow, that's a pretty bold challenge, huh? Whatever you've seen in me, put that into practice. And the Lord of peace will be that you will find yourself content in Christ. Because you're setting your mind on those things above and allowing yourself to be consumed with Christ, who is our everything. And if you do that, like Paul, you will be able to find yourself in every situation content. Whether you're well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. And yes, Christians can live in want. When Paul's talking about hungry, He's not talking about the stomach growling at lunchtime. He is talking about maybe days going without food or very little. And maybe even a couple of weeks having only a few meals. Isn't it so easy for us to become discontent in those situations? Well, Lord, we just have not had much money to eat this last week. Okay. Are you still alive? Well, praise God. We will complain about very little food for seven days. And yet we have, for, for many of us, we'll fast for seven days. The, you see the, the irony of that? So much of life is perspective. And when we get the right perspective, we can experience this type of contentment. And then he concludes by talking about how they have blessed him so much. When he was in need over and over again, God met Paul's needs. It's not like God just says, you know what? I just, lie. I just want life to really stink for you. I want you to know how much you have to suffer, which, by the way, he did say to Paul. But I want you to know that I, he, 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 God was for Paul. God was not against Paul. God didn't rejoice when Paul went through sufferings and just like, okay, here we go again. Going to throw another curveball to him. Yeah, you no sleep tonight. And it's not because he was a, 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 a new dad either, because he was ministering, because a friend was in need that he had to travel to the next city to help or whatever. Or he's waked up in the middle of the night. Because I, I, I love this scene in... Um, faith like potatoes in which a storm hits and lightning bolt lands in a home and it kills one of the ladies and they said you're the man of god do something and they're unbelievers right and and here he is god what do i do oh man <laughs> he feels dumbfounded and i can't remember exactly what he does um, in praying for her, but she comes to life it, because he, he recognized, you know, no breath, no heartbeat. She, this, this lady's dead. What do I do? She's been hit by a lightning bolt. 
and God raised her from the dead. I am sure that Paul had those occasions in which he was waked up in the middle of the night and said, you know what, you got to raise this person from the dead. you got to pray for this, do something. And, But you know what? God met all of Paul's needs. And he extends that same encouragement. And he says, and my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Everything goes back to Christ. But why have they become candidates for this supreme blessing? Because they have chosen to live the poured out life. They have chosen to trust Christ with their finances, and so they have blessed Paul. And in return, God will meet all of their needs. I cannot guarantee you that every single financial need of yours will be met if you refuse to give. I can't say that. That promise here, my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, I I don't think you can claim that. Why? Because Paul says, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. So, we do reap what we sow. If you are a giver, this promise is yours. God will meet all of your needs. If you are finding your satisfaction in Christ, joy is yours, guaranteed. You will consider it pure joy. You'll be able to consider it pure joy because God is working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. All right. Okay. Amazing book. Um so much about what it means to know Christ and be satisfied in him and be passionate for him, living for him, being poured out like a drink offering and yet considering it great joy um, so that we are able to constantly rejoice and find our contentment in him. Uh, That's the essence of what this is about. And so just want you to allow the spirit to stir your heart And maybe jot down at least one thing that God or the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart. Okay? At least one thing that God has been speaking. As you see here, Philippians is not a real theological book, not like Colossians. It it, it comes from his heart. um, And not that theology doesn't, sorry, but... It comes from his heart in being very personal and really seeking to bless them and give truth to them because they're going through the same trials that Paul has gone through. And this joy, this rejoicing can be theirs. And so he gives them this gift of truth. Rich, rich applications. Father, thank you for the vast truths of your word that we see here in Philippians. And I I pray for everyone here this evening that you would impart your grace to them, that they would be able to consider it pure joy when they face trials, that they would be able to rejoice in all and every situation. For it is we who are the circumcision that have circumcised the flesh. It is we who worship in Christ. And it is we who 
glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in you, Jesus, because you're our everything for us to live as Christ. Lord, would you enable us and empower us and work in us to have this type of perspective that Paul shares with the Philippians, that servant's heart, that view of suffering, that joy that's ours. Allow us to walk in that. In Jesus' name, amen.